Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Jesse Prince is a distinguished professor of philosophy at the Graduate Center, CUNY. He is a notable expert in philosophy of psychology and a strong proponent of the emerging methodology known as experimental philosophy. He is author of The Conscious Brain, The Emotional Construction of Morals, Beyond Human Nature, and Gut Reactions, A Perceptual Theory of Emotion. He was a visiting fellow at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris, a research fellow at the School for Advanced Study at the University of London, and before coming to the Graduate Center, was the John J. Rogers Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He holds a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Chicago. Welcome, Jesse, to The Thought Project. Great to be with you, Tanya. I'm just going to frame our conversation, just say in this moment in the United States, I'm actually looking at some live footage today. Students are walking out in a nationwide protest with regard to uh, weapons and guns in schools, and we know all about that, been hearing about that, but today we're actually being confronted with an illiberal regime led by President Donald Trump, a businessman an American-created celebrity who may have been elected with the help of the Russian government. Trump's campaign has been reported to have had numerous meetings with the members of the Russian government. A special prosecutor is now engaged in an investigation of the campaign's relationships with the Russians and its activities since taking office last year. More than 20 persons have been indicted as the investigations continue. This is a period of political upheaval, and Trump has demonstrated little regard or respect for democratic normative practices, including the rule of law. Social justice activism has been reignited in 2015 due to the rise of police killings of black youth, and since Trump's election, women have erupted in organizing that has not been evident in the U.S. since really the second wave of feminism in the 1970s. So... You are a moral philosopher. I'm glad you're joining us today. You've written a number of books and articles relating to the philosophical theory of morality, the emotional basis of moral judgments, among others, and of course, invoking the Humean theory of moral judgment. What do you think, as a philosopher, of David Hume, not only yourself, but of David Hume and what he would have to say about the moral quandary that is currently facing us in America. Well, I think Hume would have a diagnosis. He thought that morality is essentially about the emotions. So when you get into moral divides, he doesn't think that reason is up up to the task of settling between disputants. There are certain moral debates that have a factual dimension. So, I mean, uh, if you talk about racism, a lot of claims made by racists uh, are based on pseudoscience. Scientific racism has been 
debunked and any claims about racial superiority based on those kinds of claims um, uh, can be uh, contested and rejected. Uh, but if you get a divide between people who uh, have, say, a finder's keeper's principle, that those who are uh, in power through pure accident, those who are born rich, for instance, uh, through none of their own toil, just deserve to keep what they have because, well, the, the role of fortune has given them that, that advantage. Um, if you disagree with that principle and favor a side of redistribution that would allow people who are not born wealthy or a meritocracy where people uh, can can earn as a function of their, their capabilities, um, that would be a kind of divide that would be very, very difficult to settle by reason. And I think so what, what Hume is seeing is that when you get polarization, when you get division, it's, it, it's very often impossible to resolve because the dispute is one that fundamentally involves value as opposed to fact. There's a lot of work being done right now in political polarization. And you might think, yeah, these are policy differences. A lot of policies really make claims about how the economy works, like does supply side work or not. They look very empirical, very resolvable. But the truth is preference in the political sphere is not just a matter of policy. There's work on polarization suggesting that um, quite independently of people's platform preferences, their allegiance to being conservative or to being liberal, to being Democrat or Republican, outweighs a specific commitment on any matter of policy, any issue. It's striking and it's disturbing, but what you get from that result is the human insight that we develop a strong and emotionally grounded identification with these social group labels. And when we see somebody who belongs to a different group, there's so much animus, so much mistrust, so much contempt that makes us dislike the opponent that even getting into technical issues about what laws would lead to the most stable society, what would increase well-being and justice for all, those questions are almost secondary to how political divisions play out. Well, I think you've aptly described what we're actually witnessing and experiencing in America at this moment. I, even in my lifetime, looking back in the 60s, and I was in high school then uh, during the moratorium marches, even then at the height of the civil rights movement for racial justice, there was not this corrosive polarization, it seems, on every level that we're seeing right now. I mean, it's the identification that you've pointed out is more striking and stark now than I've ever personally witnessed or experienced. I, I, I think there is something to that. The, the evidence for polarization is contested but sizable. On the negative side, the, the naysayers who don't think we're getting more divisive will point out that party memberships have remained constant for the last five or so decades. There's a huge center. So you might think everybody is getting to, to become an extremist. Um, but in fact, 42% of the American populace are independents. And you know, so we forget that a lot of people really have positions in the middle. And there are many you know, pro-choice Republicans. And there are many pro-gun Democrats. And that gray area is maybe the mainstream. Uh, so we sometimes get an, an exaggerated picture of just how divided things are. 
On the other hand, um, uh, you know, since the Civil Rights Act and the Johnson administration, the uh, and with changes in demography, the the racial divide has become closely tied to the political divide. So, political party membership. You see, you know, white people settling the the verdict when a Republican wins. Non-whites are are playing a disproportionate role when when Democrats win, and that the feed between uh, kind of political parties as they've been traditionally understood and uh, and group battles between uh, between ethnicities and various um, uh, identity politics groups is more pronounced than it has been, I think, in the past. Yeah, I, I actually agree. And I would say that the two most significant changes are the demographics and the change in American demographics that were increasingly multiracial uh, and in the younger uh, in the younger cohort, sociological cohorts, the other thing that I think makes one feel that it's so polarized is the new technology, the social media platforms, where people are facing off uh, with one another in these discussions or not having discussions, and so that's an interesting intersection now uh, of the the presence of technology and how we relate to one another. I, I do think that is changing the landscape in very dramatic ways. Exactly how it plays in here is a matter of some uh, controversy. So on the issue of polarization, uh, there has been a big increase since the rise of, of social media. So if you look at, um, say, Republican and Democrat attitudes towards members of the other party, just uh, you know, back in the 1990s, polls in 1994, which is recent history, found that about 15% of Democrats had a strongly negative attitude towards Republicans and conversely. Um, now it's over 50%. So 55% of Democrats don't uh, have a very negative attitude towards Republicans. 58% of Republicans have a very negative attitude towards Democrats. When did this start? coincidentally around the sort of start of these major social um, media outlets like like Facebook and Twitter. That said, if you look at online consumption of news, people are mostly going to the mainstream. They're mostly going to CNN, not to the fringes. So we're still trying to figure out whether social media are really driving people further apart or reflecting something that's coming from some other source. Interesting point. So that actually is a nice dovetail to the next uh, aspect of your own writings uh, on is empathy necessary for morality? And actually, this is where the polarization feels extremely visceral because there, there appears to be a tremendous dearth of empathy in, in our exchange, in our interactions. Um, and one of the descriptions, actually, of Mr. Trump himself is that there's a lot of uh, commentators and punditry saying, well, he lacks empathy. And they draw conclusions about who he might be, uh, which yields to something akin to, like, uh, he's a sociopath. He, he, he reflects a sociopathic personality disorder. So what do we say about this moment where it feels like there's just a dearth of empathy for one another? You know, I I think, uh, though, certain polls will suggest that empathy tends to fall, you know, more on the left than the right. 
Um, you know, empathy, I think, has been a part of, of right-wing movements. There's a rise of right-wing populism, you know, across the Western world right now. And I think uh, there are many people who feel like they are uh, part of a great silent majority, to use a Reagan-esque a phrase, <laughs> whose voices have been silenced, uh, who are, you know, part of a common struggle and they're forgotten. And they're forming bonds of solidarity and alliance with each other that suggests a lot of kind of collaborative, cooperative, group-style um, social commitment and engagement. Um, ironically, David Brooks, who is a, a you know, conservative columnist for the Times, had a, had a um, from a liberal reader perspective, somewhat incendiary column uh, a few days ago where he said, you know, all these liberals who are, you know, forming these, these political correctness committees and marching on the street and calling everybody a racist, you know, they're the ones who are really polarizing. You know, there's another approach to politics where we all want to converge in the center and make, you know, deals with each other and humanize each other and view each other with dignity and respect. It, Brooks, uh, you know, he opens with a kind of snipe against empathy, but he was actually making a plea for empathy as against what he sees as a very unempathetic uh, left. There was a study of hippies that I read from the 60s when that movement was gaining traction uh, where they looked at hippie attitudes towards each other and found there's a lot of rhetoric about empathy and community and family and oneness. But when they talked about the squares, when they talked about the right or people outside of their community, they were anything but empathetic. So I think all too often empathy is a code for a certain uh, in-group, out-group thinking. And the really big challenge is how do we develop a kind of empathetic response to people who differ from us, people who are far away from us, people whose values might conflict with our own. And I don't know, that may be an insuperable challenge. So, so empathy, to the extent that it's been part of a certain um, factionization, is something that should always be viewed with a certain degree of caution. Very interesting. I think that... Um I read the Brooks uh, column. I was felt very negatively about it and about him. And uh, you know, this—I'm someone who's worked in the media world for a long time, and um, some of these commentators on the page feel to me, and I think to a lot of people, that they're really disconnected <laughs> with with our reality. Um, uh, you know, I think the lack of women on that page has been a real, I think it's a real problem for the New York Times. Uh, the addition of uh, Michelle uh, Michelle Goldberg is, is a late addition. It's like 25 years late, <laughs> in, in my view. Uh, and uh, guys like uh, Friedman and Brooks are just sort of, they've got like four columns and they repeat them in different ways. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a harsh critic with, I, without a doubt. I, I certainly uh, agree with you about about those individuals and about, about the times. I also think, I mean, more generally with respect to uh, the message that it's, it's the left that has been pushing towards the extremes, um, even if it's true, and I think uh, it's, it's not true that this is left, I think it's both sides, uh, our assumption that polarization is bad needs to be um, looked at because I, I think that polarization that prevents conversation may be bad, 
But when you get people saying, look, let's call patriarchy patriarchy, let's call white supremacy white supremacy, let's say Black Lives Matter, let's fight this, um, you know, that's, I think, an important part of America's long overdue and ongoing uh, healing process, that if, if people can't really engage in liberation politics that that says a certain group that have been neglected, and I think often neglected by, by both parties, has a voice and is going to use it, uh, those are those are really great moments of, of growth. If you look at, I don't know, going rewinding the clock to Stonewall or something like that, where a group of people who were living in secrecy basically said, no, enough, this is a tipping point. We're out in the streets, we're here, and we're not going away. You're going to hear our voices. That's been a long struggle, but I never expected to see gay marriage legislation in, in my lifetime. So there's something about going out and, and refusing uh, to deny who you are, refusing to compromise, uh, that I think can, can really move us forward. Right now, when we see an extreme of hate and, you know, uh, uh, as we perceive it uh, emerging, uh, we find that chilling. But on the other hand, uh, when it's, you know, out there overtly and we can can see it and confront it and dialogue with it, um, then we might be in a better position to make progress on it than when everybody is sweeping it under the table. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. As a matter of fact, uh, now the ERA effort is being relaunched, and I I can't think of a better moment to, in fact, bring that issue back into our political discourse. And I agree with you that uh, uh, calling out... uh, Calling out power differentials and calling them for what they are is is needed if change is going to evolve, if change is going to be brought forward. And your point about Stonewall is is spot on. Um, but also, what seems to be rattling around, and you know, yesterday is a is a is an example. Uh, yesterday was a jaw-dropping day of news. I mean, I was sitting at my desk and started at 9.15 with the announcement of Tillerson's dismissal on Twitter by the president, and it ended last night with perhaps a uh, congressional seat going blue in a very red district uh, in Pennsylvania. But what a jaw-dropping day. So what I'm seeing, and I know I'm not an exception here, is tremendous irrationality. Where And, and this is where philosophy is a, is a useful touchstone. Uh, the, the, the political situation feels irrational. The social compact, the social political compact in America feels really up in the air. And... Uh, Republicans are refusing to investigate a president, but they choose to retire. They don't speak out, but they retire. Or they contrast that by aiding and abetting this this uh, president's worst impulses. All this feels really irrational to me. Can you talk about irrationality and how perhaps that could inform this current situation? I, I do think... Um Democracy is broken, profoundly broken. Uh, we live in a, a country where policies are really increasingly decided by an elite whose votes uh, don't correspond to what the majority want. We live in a two-party system in a very large pluralistic society where the majority of voters don't think either party represents their views. 
Um, we live in a society where we have one chief executive for a huge nation who turns out to be the most powerful human being in the world and in world history uh, with more executive powers than have ever been uh, granted to to a president in our history. Um, so, and I think obvious things like finance, uh, campaign finance and all of that, that, that prevents more voices from enter, entering into politics uh, are continuing structural problems that prevent us from having a country that, that can be truly um, considered demographic. Even the voting age, the fact that felons can't vote, the fact that green card holding longtime residents uh, can't vote, issues with voter turnout for people who feel disenfranchised because they are, all these things suggest we're very, very ill. That said, there are issues about rationality that crop up as soon as you talk about the very concept of democracy, which presupposes our capacity to arrive at good decision through deliberation. And if you look at deliberation, it's fraught with the very um, you know, basic limitations of human human psychology, all kinds of biases and prejudices and power plays. Tally Mandelberg, who's a political scientist at, at Princeton, does work showing that when small groups deliberate, um, women and minorities' voices are not heard. They're silenced. They're interrupted. When they're heard, they're ignored. And when they have to make decisions, uh, they capitulate to white men in the group and white men don't budge. So even in cases where you have people in a space where they're supposed to be exchanging reasons on the basis of shared information, like a jury deliberation, um, you see tremendous forces of irrationality and bias. I think liberals are too confident in their convictions, knowing that the basic determinants of political preference are demography, where you grew up, your life experience plays such a big role and how you vote that if we don't step back and try to resolve political debates by first principles rather than our inculcated knee-jerk responses, we'll end up in cases where even if we could have a voice in politics, the voice wouldn't necessarily be the best one, the most rational one, the most authentic one. I think we should give up party affiliations. We should give up a two-party system. Each of us should think through each policy on the basis of the specifics of that policy, not because it's delivered to us in a very polarized platform. So you're, I think you're talking about now here uh, that connects to your essay on the emotional basis of rational judgment, it seems like. Uh, you're talking about how these stories that we like to tell in America. He grew up, you know, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, you know, worked his way up uh, to become the successful person. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of emotion. This is a very emotional, laden uh, American narrative, the Horatio Alger yeah. story, right? And now we know according to this last election, that there are a lot of people who feel left out of that, that there's nothing to pull from, and quite frankly, they've been disappointed and they're disaffected, uh, primarily living in the Midwest, where I'm from originally, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, all this identity politics that you liberals are talking about, you know, squeezed us out and we're going to show you. And I actually have had some personal experiences with that, uh, having gone back to Indiana uh, in the last few months, uh, 
having just a conversation of which I was being very careful because I knew where it could go. And it did go there, <laughs> not through my own choice. But the person who attacked me was a white male who didn't get a PhD, got an EDD, and he's resented it his whole life because he couldn't get into the program. And he accused me of being an elitist liberal from New York, and, <laughs> and it went all downhill from there. So the emotional, the emotional underlay of all of us comes into play in this polarities uh, that sort of inf it can inform or actually diminish a debate. Uh, and there's a lot of preconceptions about who we, who we are when we present these labels. So, you know, I happen to be a lesbian who, you know, was thrown out of my home and made her way through the U.S. Army uh, to get the GI Bill. So there's a whole story behind that. And so people may have conceptions about who I am, but I'm many things, as Walt Whitman wrote, we are multitudes. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded, too, of, of Audre Lorde, who played into this set of contradictory identities. Um, and we all are contradictory identities. We're all multiple identities. We all are are, uh, are multitudes. Um, I think there's one reason that identity politics is um, fraught. We end up putting ourselves in a single basket, and, and we, we really are many, and the plurality of opinions gets somehow masked by that. On the other hand, identity is really important, and the labeling of identities and the solidarity alliances that can be formed through through identity are very, very powerful. As as one voice, you know, we we are uh, silent, but in a multitude, we can be heard. Um, part of the problem is the classifications that we're given exert a big influence on which solidarities. So America, which has been in tremendous denial since its inception about class, ends up in a situation where everybody identifies as middle class, everybody panders to the middle class, but the truth is the middle class is, is shrinking and there are great class divisions and so many of the deepest uh, social woes are tied up with class that if you don't bring that into the discussion, um, you, you really won't make uh, adequate progress. An example mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is clearly and very fundamentally an issue about race, but race and class are bound up. And um, of course, part of the problem is policies that are incarcerating people for, for small crimes. Um, uh, but part of it is the criminalization of poverty. If you don't have a country that affords equal opportunity, and the people who are unemployed are disproportionately people of color, and crime becomes a rational choice, in conditions of poverty, not that a choice that everyone makes, but a choice that, that some make, like getting involved in the drug trade, and that puts you behind bars. Basically, you've criminalized being unemployed, but you've created unemployment through, through racial inequality. So the ways in which economic identity and economic variables, which low, low income is, a, is one of the biggest predictors of incarceration, the way they interact is so important to understand. Um, and I think it can be used as a tool for figuring out which, which identities, which groups, which classifications are, are the most important to make visible and vivid when thinking about injustice. I completely agree. And, um, you know, we sent a whole generation 
and more of black men into prisons. Uh, Not only that, we see LGBT children in the police pipeline from school to prison. Um, The people being thrown away because of their skin color or their sexual orientation uh, and the issues for women is just incredible violence uh, women are experiencing in America, epidemic levels of sexual violence and violence at the hands of their most intimate partners. And now with Me Too and Time's Up, uh, and we can thank Mr. Trump for that and, and his constellation of white privileged men who could just buy and purchase whatever they want, including women's bodies. Um, now you're having this moment where women's voices are now demanding their their place in the discourse. And it's really it's really an incredible thing to witness and also share in it as well, I might add. It, it's, it is very emotional because it, it affects many of us, you know, going back to one's childhood. It's, it's, that, it's that visceral and that actually, I think, almost primal in some cases. Uh, absolutely. I do think, I mean, that's another case where, you know, polarization may be bearing some fruit without the extremity, the perceived extremity of the Trump phenomenon I think maybe Me Too wouldn't wouldn't have happened. But it's another place that illustrates the importance of keeping things like class in the equation. The, the systematic exploitation of women stems from the patriarchy, and the patriarchy is fundamentally economic. It's men controlling economic power, and women who depend on men economically because men have the more powerful jobs or the employers or the breadwinners are in a particular position of of vulnerability. So without treating those inequities at the same time as we treat uh, sexual violence in all its forms um, is to miss out one of the sustaining causes of that very violence. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of very, I think, importantly, you know, middle class liberation movements going on right now. But I think if we started thinking about the economic variables here, we draw group boundaries a bit differently. And so this is one place where it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, person of color, a white person, um, you, your exposure to threats of sexual violence uh, really are a function of economic disempowerment and, and gender. And I think that if we say, let's set up, let's set up a party structure that reflects that alliance, you know, people think Trump was voted in by a kind of confused working class, former ma- manufacturers who are looking at uh, a, a um, uh, weakened economy. But in fact, Trump voters were relatively affluent. And in terms of things like home ownership uh, and income, were actually doing better than the Clinton voters. And I actually think that the, the real underclass in America are not part of the political equation right now. They're not, they're not perceived as a voting block or functioning as a voting block. But if they came together and voted together, and not just them, but, but, but women, people of color, anyone who's been economically disadvantaged because of their group membership and formed party alliances along that dimension, the whole electoral landscape would change quite dramatically. Yeah, I... I absolutely agree with that. And it's a very interesting thing. You're talking about class and about the disempowered 
those voices are not in the discourse. Now Reverend Barber, who's put together this uh, Poor People's March that's going to go to 32 states, is actually priming the pump of the very thing that you're describing. And and uh, this is sort of a throwback, again, to 1968 and Martin Luther King. Uh, because if you can't eat, you've certainly, if you don't have any food to eat, you certainly can't participate in the democracy process, the deliberative engagement of citizenry. Uh, it's one of the the expressions I use when I did democratic development work abroad in a dozen countries. You can't eat democracy. You have to, you have to have. You have to have a social welfare system that lifts all boats so that people have an opportunity to have a decent quality of life and therefore then from that from those fruits and and abundance they can participate. And so yes, I think we're we're at a really difficult place in the road. Uh, on this American democratic experiment. And I just lastly, I'd like to hear what you have to say about the morality and ethics that inform, just basically inform this, this engagement right now. This is, I think, a particularly perilous moment, but I also think um, it is a moment where opportunity can actually be presented and those who are brave enough to to walk through that door uh, may take us on another path out of this this confusion. I think this difficulty. I'd like to hear what your thoughts on that. I, I think we, we've come to a point where we have a kind of moral rock bottom and confidence that we have certain principles that are non-negotiable that can serve us and guide us. And if you look at those principles, and I'm thinking here of things like equality and tolerance and democracy and freedom, they're all carrying historical baggage that makes them very, very imperfect. So we talk about the importance of equality, but we live in a country with a huge class divide. We talk about tolerance, but Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry are at an all-time uh, high in recent decades. Um, you know, you, you talk about democracy, but have a, have a country where the, the two-party system and the economics of electoral politics disenfranchises the vast um, majority. So we have these ideals. Um, you talk about freedom. You mentioned, uh, you know, how can you talk about these these various liberties when you don't even have freedom from need. So our notion of freedom has been sort of unyoked from um, from th those kinds of economic freedoms, the freedom to live well and thrive that is uh, not afforded to uh, to the great many. And um, you know we live in a in a country that sort of exports its great you know liberal vision of what it is to be an ethical society but we do so while exploiting the global south we do so through you know regime change and military intervention so there's so much hypocrisy and so much failure to understand even these foundational uh, principles that our moral confidence 
has led us to a position where in the name of things that sound really good, because we've come to think these terms are unimpeachable, we're doing really, really bad things. So I think one thing that philosophy can do is return us to our foundations, rethink what these principles are, how we understand them, the errors we've made in their implementation, um, and maybe devise improved versions that can help guide us in uh, into the next period of human problem solving. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Professor Jesse Prince. The Thought Project was produced in partnership with CUNY TV, located at the Graduate Center in the heart of New York City. Being a part of the largest public urban university in the world, the Graduate Center fosters pioneering research and scholarship in the arts and sciences. The Thought Project was produced in partnership with CUNY TV, located at the Graduate Center in the heart of New York City, with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman and Jack Horowitz. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.